new ideas, thought-leading opinions and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Hello and a very warm welcome to the first School Leadership Podcast of the new academic year. Hope you had a fantastic break and that you had a good start to the new term. Once again this year we'll bring you influential and interesting guests from the world of education, whether it's leadership experts, subject specialists, policy makers or education commentators. We hope you'll continue to find the podcast both engaging and thought-provoking. Well, we start the year with a special double episode. In the first half, we'll hear about an exciting new project that's aiming to gain insights into the lives of teachers through the use of a smartphone app. And in the second half, we speak to journalist and school governor Fiona Miller about her new book, which examines how the 1988 Education Reform Act fundamentally transformed the school system. For regular and useful content on the teaching profession, it has to be the School Leadership Podcast. Leadership podcast. Time now to hear our first guests. Laura McInerney and Becky Allen will be familiar names to many of you. Laura is a former teacher and editor of Schools Week and a regular writer for The Guardian newspaper. Becky has appeared previously on the School Leadership podcast. She too is a former teacher and now an academic who spends her working week researching teachers and schools at UCL Institute of Education. Laura and Becky joined NAHTH director James Bowen to talk about their latest project. So first of all, for those who have never heard of TeachTap, perhaps the obvious question is, what is it? So TeachTap is our app that we now have. And every day at 3.30, it will ping on your phone. And for 24 hours, there will be three questions on your phone about your day teaching. So we might ask if you had to send a people out or did you have tea or coffee in your break? Where did you eat your lunch? Anything about your day. And um, once you answer the three questions, you get to see what everybody else said. So if we ask something like, what time did you get to work? You'll get to see all about the two and a half thousand teachers now who are answering every day what time they got to work. And at the very end, you get a little thing that we call the daily CPD bullet, which is just a tip telling you about a blog that you might want to read and we tell you how long it will take. So it's usually two or three minutes. And the reason why people seem to love it is um, it does three things. So we call it the SES. That's normally socioeconomic status in the rest of the education world. But for us, it's about um, seeing those results, empowering teachers to know more about their community and the shareability of those results. Because everyone then wants to sit in the staff room and chat about what they saw on TeachTap. So where, where did the idea come from, Becky? This is, you know, a new thing, never, never seen or heard anything like this. I know we have, we have teacher surveys, and as a union, we you know, survey members, but this is quite different. So where and how do you come up with this? So the idea came really through my failure to be able to research and survey teachers effectively. Um, and in particular, I, I tried when I was at the Institute of Education um, to start a survey of teachers, new teachers who were training to teach. And at the time when they were um, still at the Institute of Education, we were sending out email surveys and they were responding really well to those surveys. And then they went out on their school placements. And the whole problem with teachers and their jobs and email surveys is that they don't sit in front of computers all day. So they don't actually answer them. So the response rates on these surveys fell off a cliff. And for a long time, this was years and years ago, I just thought there must be a better way. And it was clear to me that at some point we'd get to the point where enough teachers would have smartphones that we could survey teachers on smartphones. And the thing and the reason why people are prepared to be surveyed this way is that because we only ever ask three questions a day, and those questions are always multiple response questions. You literally tap your responses. It's really, really quick to answer. And so we're asking for, you know, less than half a minute of a, of a teacher's time every day to learn something about them and about their day. Um, and, and, and then we can build up a picture incrementally of what our teachers are like. And that's very different to a traditional survey um, where we might ask um, once in a blue moon, we will ask you to answer a survey. But when we do, we might be demanding half an hour of your time. Um, and that's a really tough call on teachers who don't have jobs where they sit in front of computers. And are people pretty good then at responding most days? Or do people dip in and out? Or actually, do you have people who just say, like, whenever the questions come up, I just answer it, come what may? Or do you have those people who annoyingly answer it once a month and then forget about it? Oh, so it, it's like, you know, 
as you would predict, it's a real variety. We have absolute hardcore answerers who've answered every single day um, for the past year. And then we have people who don't, don't answer every day. We have a lot of people who answer um, just three or four times a week. Um, we have those people who in every so often remember about it and go on and answer questions. Um, so it is a variety and that presents certain kind of methodological challenges because not everybody's answering every question. So it's been really interesting for us to kind of think about what to do about that. So you end up with all this data, you must have huge amounts of data, all these questions mm -hmm. um, you answer. Well, you kind of think, that's very interesting. But my question, I suppose, is, you know, to what end? What, what are you hoping to use this data for? Is this about helping to influence government policy, that you've got a better view of teachers? Is it about helping schools? Is it about helping teachers themselves? What, what, what's it for? So Becky and I both taught. And when we did, we, we both taught in lots of classrooms because we were teaching quite a lot of sixth form as well. And so one of the particular questions that's bugged us for years now is... How many classrooms do some teachers teach in? And given that we know lots of teachers leave within the first five years, it's now around one in three are leaving within five years in the profession. We think that's because of workload or we think it's because of pay. But actually, could it be as simple as both of us got really naffed off with having to work in 17 classrooms over two weeks? And actually, you can go and do a job where you don't have to move around every 50 minutes every single day. Like, could it be that that drives even a small percentage of teachers out. And we have no idea. We had no way of getting that kind of data. So in England in particular, being able to figure out what is affecting people leaving the job. And because in the last 12 months we've collected lots of data on people and then we know who is now leaving, we will start over time to be able to build up a picture of what people's lives have been like over the past year. Because when you ask them when they actually are leaving, why they're leaving, people post-rationalise in all kinds of different ways. So they may say it was to do with their family when actually they hate their boss and they just don't want to say that to their boss. So we can start to find out all different things. Um, and answering those big questions is a real driving force for us. And of course, we've got that one. But everyone else has got their own questions. Just this week, we've asked about what teachers want to know about teachers on holiday. There is no research about what do teachers do on their holiday and, you know, people have been asking, even today someone asked, um, do teachers have cleaners and gardeners, you know, or do they have time to do those jobs? And we don't know. So you're going to get this insight into teachers' lives that probably we've never had before. It's quite a minutiae level of detail. Is that a fair... Yeah, and what that can allow us to do, I think, is come up with better interventions because it's all very well at the moment the way we do various trials or various interventions or experiments within school is we'll often come up with a solution that we think will work because of what we're we're seeing or people are telling us but we're trialing and putting money into things where we actually don't know if it's if what the underlying mechanism is so if we found out for example that we think classrooms make a difference then what you could do is run a trial in two different schools one where you really fix the timetable around teachers being in fewer classrooms and somewhere else put you know leave it as it was and see if that makes a difference or not rather than just coming up with a bunch of products and solutions and trialing those because that's what we've got and i'm just interested because you talked about your kind of examples which felt kind of kind of a secondary example do you segment the data once once you've got the data do you start saying actually let's look at it from a primary perspective a secondary mm. uh, uh, mm. I don't know, middle leader compared mm. to a senior leader example. Mm. You break it down all those levels? Yeah, so every week um, we write a weekly roundup, which is our kind of very quick analysis of the questions that we've asked over the past week. Um, we always break down the analysis, and it's really striking how mm. frequently there are really quite stark differences mm. between primary and secondary teachers. Obviously, in the nature of their job and their day, but also in their value systems, um, mm. how they feel about... Um, uh, what they think the purpose of their job is, their attitudes towards children, towards parents, who they have very different types of interactions with. Um, and then within secondary schools, we see these real subject differences where um, there really are archetypal mass teachers and languages teachers. Mass and languages teachers are very similar to each other in their value systems and attitudes for all kinds of reasons, I think. Um, and science teachers, for example, are very different to them. Um, they're often on what we would describe as the progressive end of the scale in their beliefs about how children learn and how they should teach in the classroom, for example. Um, so we can always highlight these r real differences. I mean, so to give one example, 
we asked um, we asked the extent to which they agree with the statement that um, administering a baseline test to four year olds is cruel. And um, well over half of teachers agree to some extent, yes, this is cruel. But when you look at it, it's actually the secondary teachers who really think this is a cruel thing to do. And primary teachers who perhaps, you know, know four-year-olds a bit better are less inclined to say that it's a cruel thing to do, although many of them are not hugely in favour of it. And then we ask, you know, on a completely separate day, we can ask a different question about the baseline and we can ask the question in a more policy-orientated way and say... Would you like the key stage one assessments to be removed and replaced with a baseline test for four-year-olds? Well, when you ask the question that way, suddenly primary teachers really do start to say in much larger numbers, yes, we think that this would be a good policy. And I think sometimes that's slightly um, less well aligned with the perception we have within the profession, which is that the profession are overwhelmingly opposed to an assessment for four-year-olds. I think it's more complex than that. And I think that that primary teachers who encounter four-year-olds, you know, wouldn't necessarily invoke the language of cruelty when they think about it. They think there might be all kinds of other problems around reliability that we can ask about and we have asked about. Um, but there are some of the ways that we can see these differences that you might not guess. You might not guess that secondary teachers would be so against the baseline test. So there is a, is there a bit of an opportunity here that we're getting, you're getting such kind of focused data like that, that it could be a case of finding more specific solutions to problems. Up until now, kind of recruitment retention has been seen as a whole. We, we haven't really looked at it at that kind of primary, secondary level, subject specific level. It, it, could it be that what we end up is more specific solutions these kind of big problems depending on the subject you teach the age group you teach yeah I think we've come to the conclusion over the year that we talk about teachers as if they're a homogenous mass and what this has brought home over and over again is often if you ask an opinion question how evenly divided people are from strongly disagree through to agree um, and how much that stacks up depending on what phase what age what subject you're teaching and also we see a big difference in head teachers' opinions mm. versus classroom teachers. Mm. So, for example, we did some work on um, marking and we asked teachers, if you um, didn't write comments on your pupils' work, do you still think that they would learn as much? And, you know, around 65% of teachers strongly agreed that that would be the case, even though actually they seem to really like marking as well mm. when we asked them about really? it. Well, they, well that's, so they don't like marking, mm. but when we've said to them, if no one was checking and you didn't have to mark, how much would you reduce your marking by? Mm. Around half say they would still do it all, or only reduced by 25%. And that's mm. even true of teachers who mark for hours and hours every week. So they tell us they don't like it. They tell us it's not particularly effective, right? Pupils will still learn. And yet, on a separate day, if you ask them how much, if no one was watching, they would reduce their marking, they say not by very much at all. And then what's interesting is we found out that head teachers are much more likely to believe that marking matters. So head teachers do think comments affect people's learning. They do believe more that you should have policies on these things. And so is it that teachers are, are think that even if no one was watching, they've somehow taken in this belief or that they can't quite believe that their head wouldn't check on them? And so that's why they would keep doing it. Mm. Or is this a fact that when you ask questions in different ways, it catches out people's inconsistencies? Um, but it is an interesting mm. finding. And in terms of, yeah, you're going to get all this really fascinating information. I can imagine if you're a teacher, you're going to be looking at this, just saying this is interesting, this is really interesting. But does it go beyond that for teachers in terms of being useful to them, in terms of like their practice, their work? So the most, the most uh, simple answer on that one in the last six months I think we've seen be effective was a question we asked about out-of-office emails at Christmas in which we said, do you set an out-of-office and have you answered emails over the holiday? And about 50% of teachers don't answer their emails or check them at all, and about 50% do. And this caused a big debate on social media, which has now spilled over into various conferences that Becky and I speak at, workshops with teachers, people come up and speak to us about it. Because those people who, don't answer, who, who do answer their emails say, I'm just doing this because... 
Um, I want to. I don't expect anybody else to check their emails. I just would feel very nervous if I got back to work and I had this big list of stuff. And then the other half say, don't you realise that that makes us incredibly nervous? And someone described it as, it's as if we've all got monkeys on our backs when we leave for vacation or for the weekend. And then we spend the whole time trying to fling those monkeys onto somebody else's back so that they're not on ours. And they're, of course, logging in and trying to get rid of the monkeys so that they don't have to deal with it when they get back. And it's causing a genuine problem because teachers, we found out, work very long days. They get to work extremely early. They often leave at 4.30 because they think they've they've got to go and pick up their kids and they feel very guilty. So they then start working again. They've already been there from 7.30 till 4.30. It's now 7pm. They start marking again. 40% of teachers on a given night are marking in front of a television, they say. They go to bed about 11 o'clock. And then all weekend and evening, they're also pinging these emails around. So I think what we've done is we've asked people to start having genuine conversations with your staff about this conflict. Some schools have said they've brought in... um, rules around whether or not you should delay emails or they might bring in systems which allow you to send emails the next day. Other schools have said, actually, this is really good for us. All of our staff are happy. They're all at home at night and they're happy to do this and it's much easier than us speaking in the day. But I think it's been a a genuinely useful conversation that has led to some policy changes which may hopefully affect workload in the future. It's kind of almost opening the doors to other schools. Mm -hmm. I think back to my own kind of teaching school. I knew what went on in my school. Mm -hmm. I knew the culture of my school. I didn't know what the culture was of a school in Newcastle. I guess by doing this you're allowing people to see it's not like that everywhere, for better or for worse. I think that's absolutely right and I know James, like like, um, Laura and I, we're very lucky that we get to visit lots and lots of schools in our jobs and as a result we know the wide variety of practices but for most teachers their lives aren't like that. Mm. They get to see one school um, there may be things that go on with the, in their school that they're not quite sure are working, um, but they don't know, first of all, whether this is the norm, whether there are choices around how they should organise things, and whether there's a better way. And TeacherTap helps them both find out the kind of um, the different types of practices that are taking place within schools, but also via the tips, and some of the tips are about very... Um, specific minutiae of a teacher's life or around a very specific part of a of a policy for example a marking policy or a behavior policy that a teacher is talking about and they're talking about how and why their school has moved from one system to another and all of these things help teachers um, um, think about um, how things are organized within their own school and what kind of things they could change. And you mentioned there the kind of the research of the tips bit. Can you say a bit more about that? Because I know having used it myself, that was a bit that really interested me. I don't know if that's just about me. As, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that bit where you, you fill in a few questions at the end, this kind of mm. piece of research, how does that work? Perhaps if people haven't used it. Mm. So on the last page, um, we we have you know just a sentence or two that tells you about a blog post or an article um, that we're linking to we try to find things that will only take three minutes or so to read and what we are doing um, is trawling through all of the blog posts that are being written by mostly by teachers every week and there are hundreds and hundreds of teachers in the country writing blog posts and we're trying to pick out the ones that we think that teachers teachers across the country will find interesting to read Um, so so they are on topics from, I mean, all aspects of teaching um, around classroom organisation, marking, assessment. Um, they are um, trying to review kind of academic research that's out there and make it relevant to teachers as much as they can. And that they're some of the most popular blog posts that we post. Um, but they're also just trying to trying to talk about what their lives are like as teachers um, in a way that they that they think is useful for other teachers to see. I want to go back to the questions for a moment because one of the things that came to my mind is how on earth do you come up with these questions and are you not going to run out because you know you're asking what two or three questions a day where do they come from how are they generated? So to begin with um, we went out and found all the questions that are publicly available um, that have been asked to teachers in the past via traditional social surveys, via OECD international surveys, um, the kind of questions as well that we ask the general population to try and learn about um, what their lives are like. So we got all of those together 
And then um, Laura and I just started writing questions. And you say you run out. I mean, bizarrely, we just never seem to. So every week, every time we have an idea, we use a we use a um, an app ourselves to like um, run the organisation. Um, we just post question ideas you know several times a day we have ideas we're looking at um, social media we're looking at what teachers are talking about we're looking in uh, the papers at what uh, news stories are out there every time a politician makes an announcement or we hear a rumor they're about to make an announcement we think about the questions because we want to know what teachers think about the announcements i'm almost tempted to ask you about the questions that don't make it through to the cut but i won't <laughs> i bet there's been some good that some good questions so what's have... interesting is that if you write a lot of questions you get good at writing questions um, and the main thing because they're multiple cho- choice they're not open-ended is we have to try and anticipate the responses that um, teachers will want to give and that's the part that takes skill um, and, but we also regularly put calls out on Twitter and um, say who'd like to ask a question and we get tons and tons of teachers mm. like ask, give, giving hundreds and hundreds of ideas for questions um, so, so we do that um, equally. So perhaps Laura, I can ask you to give us a flavour of the kind of questions. I think you mentioned some of them um, earlier on, but you know, say for example, the last couple of weeks, what are the sort of questions you've been asking that have been particularly interesting? Well, cause, because people are on holiday and we often ask about your job, it's been trickiest, and we and we weren't, we didn't know. This is the first summer we've done this. We only launched the app last September, so we've nearly done a whole year now. Um, but we weren't sure whether people were going to run off on holiday and stop answering or they were going to stay on yeah Yeah. what we did know is that on Christmas day last year at that time we had about 1500 users and 1300 answered on Christmas day which is quite incredible Mm. so we had a feeling that they would stay and they have which has been good and we've got some new people um, on on board as well and people are talking about it on social media we think as teachers get more and more bored in the holidays they'll they'll (laughs) possibly be looking for more and more questions to answer um but in the last few weeks, um, I'm trying to think what the most interesting findings well, of the last few weeks have been. So I'm taking the opportunity, because I'm an academic, to ask some questions that are going to be useful for my oh, own yes. research. At the moment, I'm trying to finalise a paper on like why, why, why are science teachers more likely to leave the profession than teachers in other um, subject disciplines, particularly at the start of their career. So we're asking them lots of questions where we're hoping to learn about their perceptions of the extent to which they can find jobs outside teaching. So we've asked these questions that say things like, and we ask them to all teachers, we say, suppose teaching disappeared as a profession, you could you could no longer do it. Um, how likely do, do, do you think it is that you could find a job um, elsewhere um, in a year's time after that happens? Like, do you think your wage is likely to be higher or lower than it was in teaching? We're trying to ask um, uh, teachers themselves, you know, can you recall the time you applied to be a teacher? Were you rejected from a place on any training route or any training course? Um, we're asking them to try and recall the people who you originally did an undergraduate degree with. Are you in touch with any of them? And if so, are they tending to earn more or less than you? And these are all ways that we're trying to get a handle on the extent to which different types of teachers um, perceive they have different types of outside employment opportunities outside teaching or whether they actually do have different types of outside employment opportunities. So what's the, the most surprising response you've had? Have you asked any questions where you know the response has just been completely the opposite to what you were anticipating? I asked a question this week um, to primary teachers where the response was completely the opposite and I asked um, you have to you have to give up teaching one of these subjects at the moment mm. you teach everything as a primary teacher uh, which one would you give up and I gave the choice of English and maths I gave the choice of a bundle of PE plus the performing arts, creative performing arts. And then I gave a bundle that included like history, the, the foundation subjects and science. And um, overwhelmingly, they opted to give up PE and the performing creative arts. And I was astonished because I was expecting math, them to say maths, but only 7% of primary teachers would give up maths, given the opportunity to do so. So I'm constantly surprised mm. um, by teachers and the responses so is they that, give. Do you have a plan at some point to, is there going to be a big report? You know, and then do you bring this all in together in one place and say, here's what we've found? That's going to be quite tricky, bearing in mind the number of questions mm. you've asked and to draw mm. out themes, I'm guessing. But are you going to try and do that at some point? So we've done 44 weeks of blogs. And I this last week actually started counting up the words on that. And we reckon we've written 70,000 words worth of blogs. And what we have just put together 
is all of the blogs on four topics, things like workload, assessment, marking, there's one other, I think, behavior. behavior. And I printed those out, and they're about 130 pages long. So, um, and actually, we sat earlier before before we came here, reading over it, going, God, there's so many exciting things in here that we've learned already this year. So, yes, what we now want to do is go away and put those into a format um, that's not quite 132 pages long. It's going to be an we'll, executive summary, isn't it? Exa- exactly, <laughs> and sort of pull out the main and most useful, um, most useful findings. Just to come back on something, actually, that did come out in the last few weeks because it's related to head teachers um, which I think is an interesting finding is around the pay deal so of course a few weeks ago the education secretary announced the pay deal and as Becky mentioned we often know that things are coming out and we'll try and preempt it and that was one where it had to happen on the, on the final day so a few days before we asked a few questions and um, interestingly we asked what do you think would be a fair pay deal and head teachers um, a lot of them picked within the one to 1.9 range Mm. but we then once the announcement had been made that there was going to be a different type of pay review uh, asked if you thought it was fair that classroom teachers were getting 3.5 we then asked about the senior leaders and we asked about um, more experienced teachers and of course head teachers were no longer happy Mm. with their deal because it was now unfair so we also do get some quite interesting uh, information that shows how things that we think on one day do get changed by events. And new information kind of skews almost. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's been really helpful from a policy perspective mm. because we're able to say very quickly what people's reactions are, mm. but we're also able to see what's influencing those reactions. And one thing that I think comes out again and again is despite the fact we've said that teachers are enormously diverse in the nature of their jobs and in the values that they have, on the other hand, they have a very, very strong sense of equity and fairness within the profession and teachers want to be treated equally so we often ask questions about differential pay you know your head teacher is having difficulty recruiting someone in the case of a secondary school a physics teacher how much more would you be willing for that physics teacher to be paid in order to get them through the door and you know the answer is frequently almost nothing extra um, and they feel it's very unjust that physics teachers should get paid more. And it's really important that policymakers know that because we have to have a profession that feels OK with the way that the profession is. And so it's all very well, you know, certain economists, including my academic colleagues, saying we have to pay physics teachers more because of their outside wage opportunities that they have. But in doing that, it has a set of consequences on the rest of the profession that we have to, to take seriously. Well, they they because, do have to you know, know You might be tempted to say, well, I'm, go- I'm going to pay them to bring them in, but the mm. effect that could have on morale and the rest of the staff. So yeah. it's important at a number of levels, isn't we it? We also mm. did a really interesting finding where we asked people about when they started, where on the pay scale they began. Mm. And because we know how long people have been in teaching, what year they qualified, how old they are, we can, we can start to see if there's been any changes And what we found is that um, current NQTs who are coming in, there is a small percentage who are actually being paid quite a lot on entry, but then the rest are coming in very much at the lower end. Whereas maybe 15, 20 along the years ago, um, there was more people coming in what would be equivalent of, say, M2, but no one coming in at, say, the equivalent of M5. And so we do think that it looks like there may be some head teachers who are playing a game where they're thinking, well, actually, I, I just can't get physics and math teachers in the door. I'm going to have to, from the outset, pay them slightly higher. Um, but in consequence, that means that more other NQTs will only ever start uh, lower down. And if they're coming in as career changes, that may be quite tricky for them. So if they're coming over, say, from being an accountant to come and be a you know, it's less likely because they're doing maths. But if they're coming over from industry to be an English teacher, they may not get that bump that they would have had in the past. So we're starting to see some interesting trends already on pay. So if I go back to the app itself, um, what's the long-term vision? Where where would you like to see this go? I mean, what's, what's the potential for it in the long term? I think the most important thing is that we keep answering these big questions. So teacher shortage and and workload has been a huge one for us this year and I think will remain so over the next few years but it it would be good I think every 12 months or every two years to have a big driving question that we can help the entire profession answer and that's one of the things we want to do um we're also looking at other countries 
you know, we see in this country that science and language teachers are very similar. Uh, sorry, maths and language teachers is very similar and science is different. And people tell us that's because maths and languages are inherently different subjects to the others. But is that true in every country? Because if it is, then actually it is something about the subject. If it's not, then we may be onto a cultural attitude towards the subjects. So if we can do teacher tap in other countries, not only will it help us answer their problems, for example, teacher absence rates are very, very high in countries like India, um, and we could find out whether our own assumptions are actually not, you know, not held up once you start looking across the world. And you said before, we're helping teachers see what it's like in the school down the road or the school in the next city over. Imagine if you could also see what's possible all across the world that really opens up what you think is uh, is possible within your classroom but coming back to this country um you know we're already one of the biggest surveys teach surveys around at two and a half thousand people mm. answering a day but we would still like to be larger and the reason why we'd like to be larger is because we ask things in so much detail we want to know exactly what for example primary head, head teachers think about um, their job or in doing in their school and to do that kind of sub-analysis of small groups within the profession um, does demand an even larger survey than we have at the moment so that's the thing we would really love to be able to do. I think if we can get um, if we can get another two and a half thousand, we've got two and a half thousand in the last year who are using it every single day. And if we can get five thousand, which is, you know, a, a, hand, a handful of head teachers going out and telling their staff that this will make a difference to what they learn, what we all know as a profession. And loads of teachers come up to us now and say, you've changed the conversation in our staff room. You know, we used to sit around and kind of chat about telly last night and now we're on TeachTap and we're saying, oh, did you know this about marking? 65% of teachers are told what colour to mark their work in. Can you imagine? And we've, we've had huge discussions with people about what different colours are. There's a school that requires learning support assistants to write in aqua-coloured pens like it's it's extraordinary what we're learning and but that conversation in a staff room in all seriousness actually how much time do we spend do we do this is this sensible are the other 35 percent of schools you know all failing no it turns out actually a lot of them are doing really well could we stop wasting time on this is super important and if we can get more head teachers to say to their staff this is something that's helpful for you it means you can see the results you know you're empowered from the learning and you get to share this in the staff room then we're going to get a much better sample and we're all going to learn more um, as we go forwards so, so let's make that's sure people thing. know how to do this and i'm sure most people will but just in case if someone's listening to this and they're not on teacher tech what do they need to do they need to go to the App Store or the Android Store, whatever. Well, we're only on Android and uh, iPhone. So if you do have a Windows phone, I'm afraid. Uh, is anyone still on a Windows phone? No, no. no. Those so if you go to the App Store and the Android and get Teacher Tap, T A P, because it's the app that you tap. So Teacher Tap. Uh, you can get it, it's free. You don't need to uh, do very much to sign up. We just ask for your school and your school's postcode. Um, and that helps us get some information about your school. But we separate out the results from your personal information. It explains everything. It's all anonymous in terms of how the results work and everything. And we never give away school-level data. So um, I think that's the easiest thing. TeachTap, download it. You can get the blogs on the teachtap.co.uk website. And we're also on Twitter as TeacherTap. NAHT Edge is a union and professional association aimed at teachers with leadership responsibilities. Whether you're a subject coordinator, year leader, key stage leader, early years leader, SENCO or head of department, we offer full trade union protection and high quality advice. In addition, our weekly newsletter and monthly podcast keeps you up to speed with the latest developments in education. Membership of NAHT Edge costs just £13.50 a month. Find out more by visiting www.nahtedge.org.uk. And as a footnote to that, as a member of NAHT or NAHT Edge, you can benefit from access to a wealth of information and advice. Whether you're looking for information on GDPR, staff dress codes or pay and conditions, you'll find what you're looking for on our website. You should also receive a regular newsletter from us direct to your inbox which lets you know about our latest advice pieces and keeps you up to speed with the latest news from the world of education. Let's hear now from our next guest, Fiona Miller.
Fiona is a journalist, governor and campaigner on education issues. She was also a former advisor to Cherie Blair. In her latest book, The Best for My Child, Fiona examines how parent choice, diversity of school provision and the idea of a quasi-market in schools have dominated education policy for the last 30 years since the passage of the 1988 Great Education Reform Act. James caught up with her to find out more. Engaging content and revealing insights. In conversation with James Bowen. Your new book centres on the 1988 Education Reform Act um, and how that's kind of shaped the current school landscape. Why was that act so important, bearing in mind it's quite old now, and, Mm. and what were the kind of forces that it unleashed into the system? Well, it makes me feel very old to even answer that question for you because... I do remember the Act coming in. I remember the 1980s, and I remember being a school governor at the time. And I think you have to understand what schools were like before that. There was a feeling that it was a very patchy landscape. Um, Where you lived depended on what sort of education you got. There was no national curriculum. And what sort of, you know, you couldn't choose between schools because schools largely had catchment areas. And I also think the government at the time felt that the local authorities and the teaching unions, nothing changes had total control of the system. So they wanted to do several things. They wanted to inject some market forces into education in the form of parent choice and competition, so league tables and Ofsted, um, and also take power slightly away from local authorities. So other things that weren't in the book were the introduction of governing bodies as we know them now, delegated school budgets and grant-maintained schools, which were funded directly from central government. So it was was a more marketised approach, which I think they felt would kick-start the system and improve standards overall, because if parents had choice and were kind of voting with their feet, schools would have to buck up and respond. They'd either have to get better or, or close down. Um, of course, it didn't quite work out like that, but that was the motive behind it. And I think ever since then, we've all the changes that have taken place have still changed, taken place around this fundamental tenet that parent choice and competition is how you should run public services. And you said about the kind of... Um almost opposition to local authorities underpinning mm. this. Why do you think that was? That there, there, Through the book, I got that sense there was a real kind of concern in government about the power of local authorities mm. in education and that they weren't necessarily improving schools. I think they felt that people... I think they felt that local authorities and educationalists were basically on the left, and it was a conservative government at the time. So they had these sort of left-wing forces who wanted a kind of uniformity to control the system. And there's a very good anecdote in my book when I went into Ken Baker, who was the Secretary of State at the time, and brought the act through, he said he'd been to visit a school in his constituency run by Ilia, which was this huge left wing in the London Education Authority. And, and it was a political meeting, but they'd left a game out on the floor, which was, you know, when, when TOFs met the ordinary people and they had people in top hats meeting workers. And that was a sort of epiphany for him because he looked at that and thought this is all very politicized you know, it's all about the class war and we've got to take these people out of it and get you know good entrepreneurial conservative values into education and that's what it was about I think. And you mentioned there before about parental choice being right at the heart of these reforms I wonder do you think that successive governments have almost overestimated parents desire for choice that actually do parents want to shop around and have this market-based approach? Or actually, do most parents just want a good local school? Well, I think you, so we have a very consumer society. It's a consumer-orientated society now in the way that we didn't have 30 or 40 years ago. Everybody can just get anything they want online immediately. And not, not only that, they can put their views about what they think about what they've bought online immediately. And I think that has, you know, its tentacles have spread into the public sector. There's no doubt about it. So I think you've got to give people a bit of choice. And anyway, even if they don't want choice, having had it for a while, you couldn't take it away. But at the same time, I think they want the choice of good local schools. Maybe they'd like to choose between two or three good local schools if they're lucky enough to live in an area which even has three, two or three local schools and lots of rural areas don't, of course. Um, but, but, but fundamentally, parents have worked out that they only have a preference. They don't have a choice. All they can say is, I'd like to go to that school. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll get a place at that school. And that's where the, one of the fundamental flaws in that model is you, you don't actually give parents choice and the market isn't elastic enough, supply isn't elastic enough for schools to expand and contract at will to, to meet that choice anyway. So but, you know, the obvious question is, do you think those reforms had a positive effect on schools? Have school standards improved as a result of the full kit, forces of, kind of marketisation, mm. choice, increased accountability, all the things that you mm. saw from that act? Have they had a positive effect overall, yeah. do you 
Well, I think in the first burst, and I was a school governor of a very, very poor school at the time, which was fell victim to the league tables of Ofsted, and I write about that in the book, and it was certainly a very big incentive for us to improve. Then you have to step back and move away from the anecdotal and look at the data. It's very difficult to actually make judgments over time because exams and league tables have changed so dramatically that we're not comparing like with like. But I talked to Kevin Collins, who I consider to be a great guru on these matters, you know, from the Education Endowment Foundation, and he was a teacher in the 1980s, and then he went to work at Lam- uh, Tower Hamlets Council, which was one of the most successful councils. So, and now he's working at a sort of very high level looking at national data. And he agreed with me that overall... The, 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 desire to, the, the desire to put schools in a competitive environment and make them more accountable for their performance did actually have an impact. And it brought everybody up to a certain level. But we've sort of got stuck at a certain level now. And the market forces have also meant that there have been winners and losers. So some areas have done very, very well. But other areas and schools haven't done so well. And that is the, fu- the fundamental flaw with it. So you can't really say that everybody's better off as a result of the market, no. And I'll pick up on that issue around Ofsted because I'm really interested in it. One of the things I got a sense of reading through your book is that perhaps you're almost a bit torn on Ofsted, mm. that you talked about that kind of your early oh, yeah. experience mm. and your child's school was one of the first schools um, that had an Ofsted mm. inspection and you know it didn't go well and you felt actually the light needed to be shone on that school. Yet at the same time, I got the sense in the book that you're uncomfortable with perhaps all the unintended consequences. Yeah. and all. So where do you kind of sit on Ofsted mm. within the system and, and the role they play? Well, I've, as a governor, I've been through about eight Ofsted inspections. I have to say every single one of them was very accurate about the school. So I've never had a bad experience, really, with Ofsted. I think a lot of people do have bad experiences, and there's no doubt that it's become a sort of feared and untrusted institution. And I think that's a shame, because I think you do need some sort of national inspection framework. Um, so from my point of view, Ofsted was a good thing. I think where it really went wrong was when it was being used for very overtly political purposes. So the, the forced academisation... You know, if you fail your Ofsted, you're going to be academised. At that point, I think it became very dangerously out of control because people's livelihoods, their careers, their schools were at risk. And, and I, think that's, I think that's set in place a sort of mistrust of Ofsted that we still haven't got rid of. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. And I, I do think it's the case that some schools were targeted, you know, via Ofsted for academisation because that was, the mo- that was the driving force in education policy between 2010 and 2015. These terrible brokers. I mean, the NHT was absolutely brilliant. You did some great work supporting head teachers in this very hostile environment. It was a hostile environment for heads, wasn't it? Horrible, horrible experience. And I don't know if Ofsted will ever quite recover from that. I mean, it's, they've taken a step back now and it's no longer... Well, if you're inadequate, you have to become an academy. If you requires improvement, you know, it's, not, it's a bit of a grey area. But that was a very bad thing, and it shouldn't have happened. And I think it was damaging for Ofsted, yeah. And, and you, I think they, they, at the moment they're probably inspecting too many schools that don't need to be inspected, because most schools are basically OK. Yeah. But you still think there needs to be that sort of fundamental level of check within the system that, so we don't end yeah. up reverting... Well, I think you go back to the 1980s, what Ken Baker would say, there was no standardisation. I think we do need to know that children are entitled to have a basic minimum standard of education wherever they live in the country. They should have a minimum standard of teaching quality, a basic curriculum that they can all follow, um, resources. Well, that's certainly not the case at the moment. That's equally distributed. But I think there are some basic standards that we should all adhere to. And the only way you can do that, really, is having an overarching framework of some sort. But it undoubtedly needs reform. And you talk in the book, there's this phrase about the dark side mm. competition, <laughs> which is, I yeah. like that phrase. What are those? I mean, I think you talked a little bit about the fact that you have winners and losers in the system, which... When it comes to schools, actually, mm. is a huge. Yeah, we can't afford to have mm. losers when it comes to children. But mm. what are those dark sides to competition that you you see? Well, I think the dark side is the unintended consequences or the perverse incentives that pursuing very narrow data introduce into schools, the culture of schools, the way people behave. People change their behaviour. So, first of all, we had focusing on particular groups, didn't we? Have the sort of CD borderlines and children who are not going to get the level four in their SATs. Uh, then we moved on to gaming the curriculum, you know, the GNVQ that was worth four G- one GNVQ that was worth four GCSEs and schools were soaring up the league tables, but they were actually giving young people curric- qualifications that weren't going to take them to useful next stages in their career. You know, then we had the, now what we see is the, well, we've, all the time we've had this issue with admissions, so schools have got a strong incentive to keep out the kids who are not going to do well. And now we've got the issue of off-rolling, haven't we, with, with, with these illegal exclusions and so on. Um, and I think the other dark side of the market is the mass diversification, so the, the formation of, you know, the creation of 7,000 plus academies, which nobody's really got oversight of, 
And now you've got these orphan schools that nobody wants to run. That seems to me that should be a national scandal. So yeah. let's pick up on that a bit, because we, we do kind of, as you say now, have, you know, for want of a better phrase, a mixed economy now. Some mm. people call it a fragmented system where we've got quite a large proportion mm. of schools, particularly secondary, who are academies. Yet a large proportion, particularly of primaries, are still kind of uh, local authority maintained schools. Do you think it's sustainable that we have this kind of mixed economy, fragmented system? Where do you think the government might go with this? Mm. I don't really mind diversity as long as everybody's held to account the same way, but that's not the case with academies. I mean, if you're a parent in an academy, you can't go to your local authority if you're not happy with things. You have to take your banner to Whitehall, don't you, and knock on the door of the Secretary of State. I mean, that's metaphorically, but I mean, really, you have to go to the Secretary of State. Um, and that's, and, or you go through these academy chains, these regional school commissions. So it's a very convoluted process. So I think every school should be under local oversight of some sort, which is also fairly standardised. And things like admissions and exclusions should be overseen at a local level because at the moment some schools are getting away with murder. We've just seen it this week with the school St Olive's that was just, you know, kicking kids out. They weren't going to get the right grades. I mean, that's, that's absolutely totemic of what's going on throughout the system. And we, I know last time we spoke, actually, you spoke about admissions and I know that's a subject you're particularly mm. interested in. Um, and you talk about it quite a bit in the book. Well, what's going wrong with admissions at the moment from the way you see it? And how would you like that to be improved? Well, while the incentives are there for schools to get the pupils who are easiest to teach, and at the end of the day, whatever form of data you use, it still reflects your intake, doesn't it? Um, there will be an incentive for, for, for schools to fiddle their admissions. So there's too much freedom in the system. Too many things that are permissible that shouldn't be permissible, I think. Secondly, um, there are no real powers to investigate unless somebody complains about a school's admissions. The adjudicator can't go in and investigate unless they get a complaint. So that needs to be beefed up. They should have the power to go into every local authority and see that schools are behaving themselves. But fundamentally, I think schools should be obliged to come together in a local area and say, what is the best set of admissions criteria for our schools? I mean, I think you have to accept that you've got to have the faith criteria in there somewhere. But all this ridiculous nonsense with aptitude tests and banding and, you know, parishes and bell ringing and you know, feeder schools and artificially created catchment areas. It's just so easy now to manipulate the system. And in the secondary sector, 70% of their schools are their own admissions authorities. So I get the kind of sense from the discussion we're having that you can clearly see there were benefits Mm. um, to what happened in, in 1988, and you can see the positive impact. And you've also talked about all the unintended consequences as well. Mm. Based on where we are, what do you think needs to happen now mm. so we can perhaps take away some of the, the negative effects mm. and, and you know, just reinforce mm. the positive ones that came mm. through? Where, where do we take it from well, I think it, One of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because I think anniversaries are useful, you know, it's a moment to mark something. And I think, I think what we need is a sort of collective look at the last 30 years and to say this is what worked and this is what didn't work. And we want to change the things that didn't work because some of the principles of the market, okay, you know, it's okay that parents should have some choice and you're not going to take that away. It's, it is important that schools have accountability. They're spending a lot of public money. They should be accountable for what they do. And we don't want to have children who can leave school that are illiterate and innumerate. So I think those fundamental tenets of the market were good. But we have to look at the things that haven't worked. And that's where the next stage of reform comes to. So reform of assessment and inspection, no doubt about it. I think... We need the reform of qualifications. I don't know why we're still, kids are still doing all these GCSEs. It's just not necessary. Most other countries don't have such a high-stake set of tests at 16. Um, and I think we need to look at inclusion. I think it's, are we there to educate all children, or are we actually saying, well, we want to do the majority to, to do OK, but there's a small group that we don't really care about very much because we don't really care about them in the current system. They're, they're being pushed out of school or underachieving, and often they're going to very, very second-rate alternative provision, which is often not even regulated by Ofsted. I didn't even realise that. Or they're out of school altogether. And that can't be right. And then there's the issue of the orphan schools that nobody wants to run. You know, why have we got a system where... Why are we in a world now where schools can be just abandoned, like those schools in Wakefield were at the last minute, and and nobody wants them? I mean, what does that feel like for the kids in that school? Do you think there's the political appetite to take this on now because what you're talking about is quite significant yeah, yeah, reforms yeah. in a sense well that's what the, but the 88 was a very significant set of reforms massive massive set of mm. reforms we haven't really seen anything like that in education since then I mean there was the 44 act there was the 88 act everything else has been a bit incremental so the political will could be there if somebody wanted to do it um, and I think I think everybody's terrified because they know there's something not quite right with the system now 
but they don't quite know how to tackle it because this mantra of parent choice and these and everybody's chasing these aspirant parents, aren't they? The the sort of aspirant voters in these marginal constituencies and the assumption is that they're the ones that you've got to deliver these schools for and it doesn't really matter what the others how the other kids do because they're the ones who won't vote or you know their parents are so disengaged. But I think what happened with the Brexit vote actually was people suddenly saw those people kind of came out of the woodwork and did vote. And, and gave a lot of the sort of establishment a result they didn't really like. But, you know, why were they voting like that? Disengaged, disenchanted, things haven't worked for them, haven't worked for their kids. It's because we don't really focus on the, that group of people in society, and the education system is a fundamental way of doing that. And you've touched on something there. Is, it, is the political cycle, the short-termism of, of politics, one of the problems here, that actually mm. politicians are really interested in what's yeah. going to get them votes to get back into power, and that sometimes stops them from tackling the difficult things mm. or doing the right thing. I mean, obviously you've had some experience close yeah, to the yeah. political sort of front line. From your experience, is that one of the sort of tensions? Is that yeah, I think so. And also, it's only, you know, really, it's a couple of hundred thousand votes that swing an election. So you only have to worry about that small group of people. And, and we've created this anxiety amongst parents too. So they're getting a bit... I mean, I, the levels of anxiety now is so much harder than even when I, my kids were at school. People really worrying. What if they don't get into the right school? What if they don't get to the right GCSEs? What if they don't get the right exams? I mean, mostly they'll be fine. They will be fine, you know. But but we've we've created we've unleashed this sort of monster where people are all feeling they're in competition with each other now for the performance of their children. So, despite the challenges that, that we've discussed and the issues in the system, do you still remain optimistic about? I do. Where I tell you, I tell you the thing that makes me really optimistic is I think there are some really amazing school leaders. I'm lucky enough to work with one at the school. I'm the chair of governors. People with real principle, and you know they want to do the right thing for the kids. I think there are a lot of head teachers like that, and I think they probably get—they're the ones who aren't flourishing in the system as well as the others who are prepared to cut the corners and cheat and so on are. But that's a fantastic thing because most heads, in my experience, I mean the politics kind of washes over them most of the time. What they really care about is what goes on in their school. And for those people, they will be creating a very positive experience for those kids. And often those will be kids whose, positive, whose life elsewhere isn't giving them a very positive experience. And I think there are some fantastic teachers, probably a really, you know, a bit infantilised in some ways because they've been spoon-fed a lot, but, you know, a really committed generation of teachers that are in a way that they weren't in the, in the 70s and 80s. You know, I think they, people have very, very high expectations now and they're trying to be as creative as they can within a, within a very constrained system. So I think you've got the professionals there, but you know, give them a bit more power and listen to what they're saying. It's almost about unleashing them now, I think actually. So. Saying, listen to what the they're shackles saying. Of accountability you know, nobody office. listens yeah. to them. Yeah. If you talk to the head teachers, they'll tell you, won't they? What's... Everybody's assuming that they want to do the wrong thing. They don't. They want to do the right thing for their kids because that's why they've come into it. And governors, of course, there's a lot of very good governors, but that does give me faith in the system. It does. I think, I think we've got very, very good people if we can only just trust them a bit more than we do now. And that's all for this episode. Thanks, as always, for joining us. To make sure you receive all future podcasts from NAHT and NAHT Edge, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. You can also leave us a review. It'll be great to hear from you. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. You can follow us on Twitter. Our accounts are at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News. Every single episode as it comes out, just click on subscribe.